This is Benjamin Kitchings of The History Voyager. This is episode 69 of The History Voyager. This is my conversation with Christina Hogue. She is an independent journalist who we talk about her experiences in the 2002 coup in Venezuela. She was working for the Miami Herald at the time, and she had gone from Guatemala to Venezuela. We have a very fascinating conversation. The thing I wanted to bring up is that a lot of people in America are conflating the difference between a liberal and a leftist. And from a politically theoretical standpoint, there really is a difference between a liberal and a leftist. And the difference is essentially this. A liberal believes that the system doesn't work, but that you can tweak it from the inside and make meaningful changes that are beneficial to the lives of all the citizenry. A leftist thinks you need to burn the system down and build over, usually to some utopian goal. Hugo Chavez was a leftist. He was a person that wanted to burn down the structure of a very unequal society and build up some utopian goal. And as you're going to hear, that utopian goal never really showed up. And one thing that struck me in talking to Christina was how fast the coup actually was. Like how fast it went from zero to a hundred, essentially. Anyway, this is something that we should all listen to because especially we Americans, we've lived through one heck of an election this year, haven't we? And it was pretty crazy. And there's a lot of name calling and, you know, people are essentially, there's a lot of things that worry me about our society right now. For one, we seem to be in the habit of denying the humanity of the other side. And that's not really a thing to do. Um, that doesn't lead to success. It doesn't lead to a cohesive society. And one of the things that I've heard from lots of people all around the world is there's a lot of people that wonder, is this country, is the United States of America going to continue to be a country in the future? And one of the things that I've learned in the pandemic is that it is very possible, maybe in five or ten years, that that doesn't necessarily have to happen because of the technology that we have in this world. Anyway, I really enjoyed talking to Christina, and I want you guys to hear what she has to say, because I think it's very important. And I think, essentially, I'm... and. Again, I'm a little biased here, but I think political theory is an important thing for people to know. Lots and lots of people don't have any real background in political theory, and I understand why. I'm not shaming anybody. But I think if we're all going to live in a democracy, even a democracy within a republic, I think it's incredibly important for people in this democracy to live and to understand p political theory. Anyway, with all that said, I'm going to basically yield the floor essentially to myself and Christina Hogue. All right, people, have a good day and 
you know, I'll see you later. This call is now being recorded. Hello, uh, my name is Benjamin Kitchings, and this is the History Voyager, and we are going to talk with a foreign correspondent today. Um, could you please tell us your name and a little bit about your history? Hi, Ben. Um, my name is Christina Hogue, and um, I was a, what you call a freelance correspondent in Latin America for almost 10 years, from 95, um, actually before that, from uh, 92 on. Uh, and I lived in Guatemala and in Venezuela, and I traveled around um, kind of the whole continent of Central South America and also the Caribbean, covering different stories for outlets such as um, New York Times, Houston Chronicle, Time Magazine, Business Week, Miami Herald, Financial Times, Sunday Times of London, um, basically whoever would buy my stories. So it was, it was a lot of fun. I really had a great time doing this. Wow, yeah. Now, I have some relatives that uh, spend some time in Guatemala. Mm. And they tell me that, that women, and I don't know if it's all of Latin America or just Guatemala, they kind of have to, it's not like being a, a woman in America. There's a lot more. Uh, well, one of they said you had to be inside by a certain time. At least in Guatemala, is that? Not really. Well, I, I, it's it's funny that you know you somebody told you that because that was exact. That is what what I felt there. I lived there um, maybe fourteen months, just over a year, and it was very much um, you know it's a, it's a really beautiful country and it's really interesting. It's got a really interesting history and it has a lot of um, indigenous culture there that's still very much alive. But there was this undercurrent of sort of sexism, misogynism there. And women were sort of, um, you know, you were either the, the, the Madonna or the Jezebel, you know. <laughs> so, right, um, right. Yeah, and it was, it was very apparent. And um, I was walking along the street one day, just, you know, get, got off the bus, and somebody slowed down, and it was a car full of guys. And somebody stuck their hand out and just slapped me on the on the bum, you know. And it was just really, you know, really humiliating. It was just not, really, yeah. I, and I just kind of yelled. I was just like, ah! Um, but I was like, gee, you know, I've never had anything like that happen anywhere else. But I, I think that's, you know, it's kind of true. And and women are kind of, um, you know, sort of in a, a little bit in a second class citizen status, you know, even though we're that- twenty twenty. Yeah. Is that in Guatemala or is that in? Guatemala. in uh... No, that's in Guatemala. I did. I felt that more than in other places in Latin America. I didn't um, um, yeah. feel that at all um, elsewhere. It seemed like the. It seemed almost sometimes that it was sort of a medieval <laughs> society. It was always, you know, the landowners and and serfs kind of thing. You know, the campesinos and the landowners. It was. It was very much an old fashioned society that hadn't really progressed to modernism you know wow. so wow, that's... yeah all right um i have been dying to ask you about mm-hmm. the venezuela coup so yes uh what was were you in venezuela before the coup and and you said it was 2002 right yeah, so I, w- I went to Venezuela. I was living in Guatemala, and I, I, as I said, I didn't really like it there. I didn't. There was just, you know, a lot of um, 
as I said, this, this undercurrent of sort of sexism stuff. So I left there, and I ended up settling in, in Venezuela, which at that time, it was 95, was a pretty modern society. And one of the things that attracted me to it is, like, people had washing machines in their apartments. Like, in Guatemala, only the very wealthy have washing machines. You do your wash, your wash clothes by hand. Uh, I don't know if that's changed. I Probably not, you know. Um, so it was a much more advanced, society and it was a nice place to live um then hugo chavez at that point was was sort of coming up and won election in 96 and implemented sort of this very leftist regime which angered a lot of the wealthier um venezuelan society um we saw their sort of way of life was sort of under threat and businesses you know uh, that kind of thing um, yeah, so in 2002, uh, after many, you know, a long period of rumors, there was yeah. a coup attempt. Yeah. Now let me let attempt. me let me back up just a second because as soon mm-hmm. as you emailed me about this, I I did just a bit of digging and I was amazed mm-hmm. to find out that Venezuela was the third at one point. Venezuela was the third biggest economy in the New World. That's uh, North and South America. And of course, yeah. it's, it's not. Well, so we're not, we're not talking about a small uh, economic country, are we? At least in '96. Yeah, you know the thing that, that Venezuela has that the world wants is oil, and Venezuela actually has the biggest oil reserves outside uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, it has immense oil reserves, natural gas, uh, huge petrochemical industry. It also has a lot of gold. Um, diamonds and bauxite, which is used to make aluminum. Um, it also has a huge dam, a glory dam, which at one point was the biggest in uh, Latin America for hydroelectricity. So, yeah, I mean, it was really a powerhouse. Um, it's one of these situations where, like, in Argentina is similar, too, that it once was a world sort of economic powerhouse, and just through mismanagement and corruption, it's just gone down, you know. Okay, now, okay. And now it's completely in the toilet. You know, really now you I, I didn't mean to interrupt, I just wanted to interject that because I'm I'm confident that lots of my listeners did not know that at one point it was the third largest economy in the Americas. So um all right, now you had said rumors of a coup as as recent as, as late as as how far back? Well, there were rumors, you know, before the, the coup was actually go, um, happened, which was in April of 2002. There had just been rumors going around. And, again, when, you know, it gets to the point where, I mean, it's a smaller, much smaller country than the United States. So things sort of travel in the zeitgeist a lot a lot more. And, and a lot of it was wishful thinking, too, by the elite uh, strata of society that they wanted a coup. You know, they wanted a Chavez out of the way. Um, but there was a lot, yeah, there were these rumors that, you know, the military was going to move, the military was going to move, and it, and it didn't happen, didn't happen, and finally it did happen. Um, and the way it happened, did you want me to go into the details of the, yes. the story? <laughs> oh, and by the way, I, I need to tell you, by the mm-hmm. way, I, I rated my podcast as not safe for work uh, with Apple. Okay. So please, uh-huh. if you don't want to spare any details, I'm not going to, please please and okay. believe you me the only audience member you need to concern yourself with is me <laughs> and i'm <Okay>. fascinated <laughs> so, 
Um, well, good. That's, that's good to know. Um, well, what happened is that all of a sudden there was a lot of strikes, um, a lot of unrest at the state oil company, which was called Petróleos de Venezuela, PD, PDF, VSA, PDVSA in Spanish. This, had, this was the crown jewel of Venezuela because of, it handled the, you know, the oil industry, and it was a state company. Um, but it had always been apart from uh, political meddling and corruption and people. The Venezuelan people were very proud of PDVSA. It was a, a world-class company. Um, Chavez started to appoint he started meddling in it, basically. He started appointing people um, uh, from his party or, you know, aligned with his project uh, to top positions in, in the company, um, you know, ousting a lot of older um, career oil executives um, and things like that. So there was a lot of unrest that and fear that Pitavesa was going to become, you know, just another of these corrupt inefficient state bureaucratic dinosaurs that um, that Venezuela had. Uh, so things were getting sort of brewing and brewing. And then finally, um, on one Sunday morning, Chavez fired, I think it was, I want to say maybe 18, I can't remember how many, quite a few, it was like a dozen, he had, of uh, Pedavesa's board of directors and top executives. Um, and he fired them on national television. He had a uh, TV show that he would do every Sunday morning, and it was quite entertaining. It would go on for hours. Um, so one day he was sitting there at his desk, and he said, you know, and he, he you know, picked up his sheaf of papers and started reading off names. Mr. So-and-so, thank you very much for your 22 years of service at Petroleum de Venezuela. You're fired. So this was pretty stunning, uh, just that the you know the way in which it was done, and also that these people had been fired, um, and of course the implication was that he was going to appoint his allies in his in, in their place. So the Tedavesa employees started a strike um, against this, and it grew and grew. Uh, to the shipping terminal, so the oil wasn't getting shipped, um, to the refinery, so the refinery managers were slowing down production. Oil wells, they were slowing down production. They were basically grinding the oil industry to a halt. Now, and, and of course, this is the chief industry in Venezuela. It's how they earn their income, major deal, affecting the world, you know, oil markets, too. Um, so finally, uh, more people uh, joined this the strike, and then they, the elite business uh, people decided to join in in support, and they called what's called a general strike. And a general strike is when all the businesses close. In other words, business, instead of workers going on strike, it's actually the business owners who go on strike, and they just don't open their businesses. So workers have no place to work. So this went on, and the the, the goal was to try and rock, make the country so it's in unstable that Chavez would say, okay, you know what, I'm resigning. This is, you know, untenable. I'll, I'll have to resign. It didn't work. Um, this had worked in 1958 um, to get a dictator out, but it, it wasn't working. It went on for a couple of days. Business owners wanted to open up and make money. You know, gradually, you know, compliance was going down a little bit as each day. Then the opposition um, called a, a march and a huge rally. 
uh, and it was really something to behold. It was held on a Thursday morning. I went down to cover it, and it was just um, hundreds of thousands of people call, um, were called out on the street, you know, assembled to march um, through Caracas. Then their goal was to go to the presidential palace and have a rally. Or um, Actually, the original goal was to have a rally elsewhere. Once the, the march started, they deviated it and went to the presidential palace. Um, and it was like a party. I mean, people were just convinced that, that Chavez was going, and they were chanting, and they were painting their faces red, yellow, and blue, the national colors, um, you know, waving flags, um, you know, banging pots and pans. It was just a huge uh, outpouring of, um, you know, opposition to the president. Uh so they didn't stop where they were going to. They continued on because they, they felt that they had enough momentum to maybe um, get Chavez out somehow. And they went on towards the palace. By this time, the Chavez camp had seen the, the march was coming. They assembled a whole bunch of people on an overpass that overlooked the street where the opposition marches were coming. Um, in early afternoon, um, that the march arrived at this overpass or nearby, and it started, people started firing shots on them. Um, and everything turned into chaos, complete, um, complete chaos. You know, everybody was just running for their lives. Um, there were snipers positioned on tall buildings on either side of this main street. Uh, they were sort of flashing. You could see the flash of the glint of the gun metal. Um, people were throwing rocks down from the overpass. Um, you know, just, yeah, it just turned into this huge melee. Um, so they called the National Guard out to try and quell the, the disturbance. People were running, um, a total of 19 people died that day, were killed, mostly the opposition people who had been marching in the, um, in that march. Um, so afterwards, the military, uh, people went to the military, the generals, and said, what are you going to do about this? This was, this was a human rights violation. We were peacefully demonstrating. Um, and, you know, Chavez got the troops to fire on us, blah, blah, blah. Um, so then it became a very tense uh, curfew was called. We all had to go home and sit in our uh, home and just watch the TV. Uh, we could see generals entering the palace. Um, in a now, long period of negotiation. Where, I'm sorry. I don't mean to yeah. interrupt this totally okay. fascinating thing. Where okay, were you in Caracas or the capital, which I guess is Caracas, or yes, where? Yeah, okay. Caracas is the capital, and I was there. I was marching to a certain point, then I went back, and I, I was filing a story to the Miami Herald, um, and then you know saw everything just exploded, like uh, you know. Okay. So I, yeah, so I'm like, and oh, back. Uh, I'm sorry, this is like totally fascinating. Back in '02. I was a young college student. Um, I could point to Venezuela on a map. Mm-hmm. And if memory serves, the Andres Galarraga was the first baseman of the mm-hmm. Braves at that point. And mm-hmm. that was my knowledge of Venezuela in mm-hmm. 2002. So please forgive me, but when you get to a point at your, at your story, which please continue with that, I do want to ask you about the world, bef- Venezuela before the coup, but please con- continue with the yeah, sure. story. 
Yes. Well, yeah, that's right. I, I forgot about Andre Keller. He uh, was the yeah, the sort of a Venezuelan baseball hero um, at, at that time. Um, yeah. So at that point, so then it just entered like this long negotiations, and what the, you know everybody knew what was happening. Is the, the generals were saying this is unacceptable. We're not going to support another a human rights um, violation on this scale, and they got him to resign. So it was about two in the morning. Um, Chavez's right hand general, one, one of his major, who, who actually was his ally, um, came on TV and in a very uh, solemn faith announced that the president had resigned. So this was the, so everybody's like, whoa, you know, now, now what? You know, now we've actually done it. You know, we've got Chavez out and Chavez is gone. He's, getting, he's leaving. So he was taken prisoner. Um, and marched off and helicoptered out. Nobody sort of knew where he went. He, I, well, at that point, I think he was taking he was taken to a local army base. Actually, he was under guard in an army base. Um, so then the opposition moved into action. They said, "Well, we're ready to go. You know, we're we're going to call a, a transitional government. Um, we're going to have a junta of um, civilians and army uh, junta to rule uh, until we call de- democratic." elections. So this sort of went into uh, effect the next, this was, so this was in Friday, by 5 p.m. Friday, there was a new government in, a new president was sworn in, he kind of swore himself in, actually, which was a, a he was a well-known businessman. Um, meanwhile, things were starting to um, sort of boil and bubble in the pro-Chavez camp, because nobody had actually presented Chavez's resignation letter. And, you know, the Chavez cabinet ministers, some of them had gone into hiding because they were out trying to round up uh, the cabinet, his cabinet ministers and put them in jail. You know, said, where's the letter? We want to see the letter. Has Chavez resigned? Where's the letter? Um, the media was kind of very anti-Chavez, so they really just didn't broadcast a lot of, the, a lot of this kind of stuff. Uh, people were calling CNN and, uh, International in Atlanta and going on the air in Atlanta saying, where's Chavez, you know? And, and somebody else, you know, said very rightly, if the, Ch- if the president has resigned, the vice president, you know, the, according to the Constitution, the vice president takes over. Who's this government? It's an illegitimate government. Um, so now there became a lot of pushback. Uh, against mm-hmm. the opposite, this new government, you know, if it was really legal or not. Um, and the Organization of American States got involved. What is the know. time scale for something like, where are we in time at this point? So the, uh, the march happened and the shooting and everything, all that happened on a Thursday. The, um, it was very quick. And then Friday morning, about two, two o'clock in the morning, that the, it was the announcement, that was the announcement that Chavez had resigned. Then the next day was Friday. By Friday afternoon, the new government was, you know, sort of sworn in and, and, you know, everybody was just going around congratulating themselves, you know, shooting their horns in the cars and stuff like that. So, and then the swell of stuff by Saturday, which was, you know, 24 hours later, then the swell of, um, and, of pro-Chavez came, you know, the, the pushback came. Um, and then the losing started. That was another aspect as well. And then um, everybody was under curfew. Um, 
Caracas is surrounded by a lot of what you call these misery belts, you know, sort of jerry-rigged, you know, sort of favelas, you know, as they call them in Brazil, um, of hills with little little houses on them. So all the people came down from the hills and started looting, um, that kind of thing, burning cars, you know, and and these are mostly the Chavez supporters who who supported him with the poor. Um, So by that time, you know, and then, Things were getting, you know, sort of, again, this pushback started started pushing back. Then it became, as we went into Saturday night, it really became untenable that um, it became clear that the, the new government was, was, wasn't going to survive, that it was uh, things were getting really shaky, um, and people kept, you know, calling um, for Chavez. Where was Chavez? You know, is he dead? Is he, you know, nobody knew where he was. Nobody had seen his letter. Um, so by Sunday morning, the opposition government had lost control, um, and they all went into hiding, including the um, the new, you know, quote-unquote president. Um, I'm, and, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm curious. Mm-hmm. I have to plead ignorance here. Um is Venezuela, is it a, was, I should say, was Venezuela a parliamentary system? Or uh, was it no, a... It, was, it had a direct, uh, a president who was elected directly, like, like, uh, United States does. Okay. It is a... Well, we don't, uh, we don't, uh, we elect yeah. electors. Okay. Right, right. Um, um, because it's just, Right, and this is why I wanted to go further back in time, because as unstable as all this sounds, I feel like there must have been warning lights, if you will. Like there must have been, if you imagine it as a dashboard, there mm-hmm. there must have been warning lights that something was happening or something was going to happen. Because if you're going to topple a government, I mean, we're not even two weeks yet, are we? <laughs> if you're going to topple mm-hmm. a whole government in two weeks, I feel like there were societal warning lights. And are, are you aware of any of those? Or well, yeah. I mean, it, it had gotten to the point it was very polarized. So, and the people, uh, Chavez had the support of most of the people because most of the people were poor. They saw in him as sort of a savior, and that he was on their side. Um, so they adored him. The People who had money, who actually controlled sort of the power and money in in the country, they were against him, basically. And was there a? Kind of, and I'm that's sorry, how it I don't, sort of went to this this very very uh, polarized um, atmosphere. Yeah, I don't mean to interrupt. I don't mean to keep interrupting because this is fascinating. No, it's okay. But uh, back then, what would you say the middle class? I mean, was there a middle class in Venezuela, or was it just rich and poor? There was a middle class, and that was one of the things, too, that Venezuela was known for. It was one of the countries that had a large middle class, as opposed okay. to, you know, say in, in Guatemala, there's pretty much no middle class. There's very little, very small middle class. You're either rich or, you know, most people are poor. Um, it actually did have a, a sizable middle class. Um, a lot oh, of the okay. middle class, yeah, did side with the opposition. Um, with the word against Chavez. By me, by opposition, you mean maybe the more right-leaning? Um, yes. Uh, okay. Yes. The right-leaning um, anti-Chavez uh, movement. Okay, so these, what the the, the I guess the uh, I forget I, it's 
weird because I I used to know what the uh, Chavez supporters were called. Um, the Chavistas. There the Chavistas. you. That, yeah. That's it. That, okay. Yeah. The Chavistas. Yeah. Um, the Chavistas. What were some of their? What did they want? I mean, what did they want the government to do for them? That they the wanted. Other, that the, that yeah. The normal program well, wasn't. They wanted housing. They wanted, um, they just wanted a chance. Um, the way the system was set up, for example, it was very difficult to get a loan, to get a credit card. These were things that really were um, set for sort of, you know, if you had money, it was fine. You'd get a credit card. You'd get a bank account. You'd get a loan. You couldn't get those kind of things if you didn't, um, if you were poor. Uh, you may have lived in a, in a house that actually wasn't legally built, so you didn't have a deed to your house that you could use to secure as security for a loan. These kind of things. Um, so uh-huh. people didn't have running water in these these sort of homemade homes, you know, little brick houses. Right. Uh, running water, um, cell phones at that point um, were something that most rich people had. But again, the poor people. And this is back phones. in 2002. Yeah. Right. When phone, um, when cell phones were a much, a much not a well, they're a bigger deal now, but they were. Yeah. Yeah, they were coming in. You know, yeah. People had them at that point. They weren't nearly what they are now, but um, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, you couldn't get uh, phones. You couldn't um, get a phone line, even a landline, because the phones there were no phone lines on the hills where these barrio. They called them the barrios. Um, you know, were, I mean, all this kind of stuff, just things we take for granted, um, you know, they, they didn't have. So they wanted a better life. They wanted running water in their houses. They got water through a, a water tank would go up in the, in the barrio yeah. and they would pump water into these big barrels. And that was, that was their water, uh, all right. supply. I, I didn't mean to, please continue with your narrative. And, okay. Uh, so, I'm um, sorry. <laughs> No, no, that's okay. These are contextual, um, important contextual uh, yeah. uh, stories. Um, so by Sunday, things were, you know, by the time we woke up Sunday, things were looking pretty shaky, you know. And at that point, the Chavista ministers, the vice, they were looking for the vice president to take, you know, to say, hey, you know, I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm actually the president, you know, <laughs> if the president in the absence of the um, elected president. So they, there was this big turn in, in events, and um, by then too, the generals, um, who again were politically, some were politically for Chavez, some were against him. Um, they were also coming under pressure. So Chavez emerged um, at uh, he was being held prisoner. He was being taken to a little island off the coast of Venezuela in the in Venezuela in the uh, Caribbean, uh, and he was being held prisoner there. They sent for him. So by that time, um, all the new government people had ran, that they'd gone into hiding. And so then the Chavistas were able to move back into the presidential palace and just physically take back the government. Um, when Okay, let me – I don't mean to interrupt. When we say – when you say Chavistas, are, who, are you talking maybe – Sympathetic military folks or or police yeah. officers. Okay. Yeah, anyone. Okay. Yeah, anyone. This was a pro-Chavez ministers and. Um, oh, okay. Okay. Generals, you know, um, 
yes, with anyone who supported him on his side. So then it was uh, late that night, late that Sunday night. Um, there was a massive, massive tens of thousands of people were gathered around the presidential palace. Um, it was called a palace, but it's like a like the White House. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they do that. Yeah. And um, and then and finally he helicoptered in. And there was huge cheers. He landed on the roof of the, the palace and, and emerged on a balcony, waving, and and he was he was alive and well, and he took back the presidency. So <laughs> it was a very odd coup. So immediately in the aftermath of this whole thing, um, of course the the anti-Chavez people had completely botched it. They sort of had the momentum going. But they botched it with this, this very draconian um, uh, uh, government that they put it. I forgot a key detail. They dissolved the National Assembly, which is like Congress. So they had um, so the, one of the first acts of this you know, new president that had come in. He actually dissolved everything. So he sort of set himself up as a dictator, and everybody didn't like that. You know, even the pro, uh, you know. Um, the anti-Chavez people are like, what? What's, you know, what's he doing? He, he dissolved the Supreme Court and the National Assembly. He set himself up as a dictator, and that also angered the generals because um, they had the the guns and the tanks and everything. And that's yeah, that was another like key key aspect that turned the tide in favor of Chavez. So then he came. So he, then he came roaring back. Um, in the days following, what emerged really was really a very dastardly plot. Uh, the anti-Chavez people had actually arranged for these snipers on top of the building to shoot on the marchers on their own side, on the opposition to Chavez, uh, to push the military into acting because they knew the military would not condone or support a president who was shooting on people. And that's really what happened. And uh, they they had to flee. There was a, a truth commission and trials and whatnot. Um, but it was a pretty um, pretty evil plot. Nineteen people died because these people thought, well, we're going to sacrifice a few lives to get to push the military to act against Chavez and get him out. How um, long were you in Venezuela after? Not that long. At that point, uh, a few months later, I left and I went. I got a job, a staff job at the Miami Herald. So I moved to Miami. Um, did, I'd been at, in, did the Herald pull you back, or did the Herald no, pull really. you back, or okay? No, I was just um, at that point. I'd been in Venezuela for seven years. The political situation was getting pretty rocky, um, and uh, so I you okay? Wait. Son. So you lived in Venezuela. How long were you in Venezuela before the coup? Seven years. So before the coup, you were there for seven years, and then you had the coup, and then you were there. Okay, okay, okay. Um, wow. Um, before we move on, mm-hmm. uh, I want because this country has just had an election, obviously, and it's pretty... This is the most unusual election I remember, and I'm, you know, I have a mm-hmm. master's degree and I've studied politics, and mm-hmm. I, you know, uh, could you compare, like, could you compare and contrast, 
like Venezuela then to America now? Well, it's funny you ask that because I wrote a piece uh, just a few months ago comparing Trump to Chavez, actually. Because <laughs> everything, there were many, many similarities. And uh, it just, you know, really, really, uh, you know, sort of hit me in the face. It's like everything Trump would do, you know, Chavez had done similar sort of things, even though they completely polar opposites, as, you know, Trump is very con- on the right and Chavez was an avowed leftist, sh- socialist, that kind of thing. But their way of doing things is very similar. And it's actually on my medium, medium.com, um, Christina, oh, you can read this piece uh, yeah. of parallels between uh, Trump and Chavez. But one of the things was this, this sort of appeal to a certain base and then just demonize whoever didn't like him was a demon. Um, well, and, I mean, you know, not not to interrupt, but mm-hmm. um, so political theory fascinates me. And mm-hmm. the far left and the far right are actually not that far apart. Because uh, if you think absolutely. about it, because yeah. right, because if you think about it, politics is not a line, it's a circle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, so actually, actually, and you know, because you're in order to get from Trump to the far left, you're not going to go through the middle. Right. right? You're going to go the shortest distance. Right. Okay. You see? See? Right. Yeah. No, so, actually, I, I'm totally in agreement. I, I yeah. often thought that myself. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um. I mean, when you were talking about all that. I mean, like, I, I remember, for example, some of the things Trump did, and I'm debating in myself, is this a plan, or is this just the mm-hmm. Trumpiness? You know mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. is, is this a plan, or... Right. Well, right. like, what, when... Some... Yeah, right. Like, when you when you actually hear what the lawyers are saying in court, Mm-hmm. And then you, with the Trump lawyers, when you hear what they're saying in court, and then, you know, you're thinking, is this a plan or? Right. Is there some the... grand scheme here, some grand strategy, or is it just all off the cuff? You know. <laughs> it... Well, yeah. the other thing I, the other thing I keep coming back to is, you know, it. I wonder if it's a grift. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but so how would you, because this country, I mean, Bernie Sanders is pretty far to the left for by American standards. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of people, uh, especially online, that, that seemed to be full-throated Bernie supporters. And, mm-hmm. and some of them I would interact with and their stories were just, you know, terrible i mean their stories were literally amazing that there's this many people that feel like you know that this man is going to enact these left-wing programs and get us back to some kind of even get me back to some kind of even keel Mm -hmm. and i mean do you kind of see that in from venezuela too or, or am i just way off base there yeah, I mean they. Just, yeah, I mean in, in Venezuela they just 
again, it was who you, it really depended on who you spoke to, you know. I mean, and again, you either loved Chavez or you hated him. Um, and it was just sort of this, um, you know, and people just expected a lot out of him. And he did actually improve the lot for the poor quite a bit. Um, and then things, when he died um, of cancer, he sort of, you know, everything then went to hell in a handbasket there uh, with his hand-picked successor. Um, so it really just depends. And, of course, many wealthier Venezuelans, middle class and upper middle class, just fled. You know, they're, they're all in Miami now, um, becoming sort of the new, you know, like the, like the Cubans, you know, fled with Castro. I mean, yeah, the the – I mean, personally, I think Florida is going to be Republican for the rest of my life anyway. I mm-hmm. Mean, um, and I mean, when I hear their stories, I don't, I can't blame them at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I honestly, mm-hmm. when I hear their stories, I, it's just, I can't blame them, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> but as I say, you know, people always say, well, this is, if this were Europe, blah, 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 you know, in Europe, yada, yada, mm-hmm. yada. And I say, well, this isn't Europe. Yeah, you know, not, the, yeah. this is yeah. not Europe. We don't have European mm-hmm. history. We don't have, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, yes, we speak, a lot of us speak a European language and I have European ancestry, but mostly, but this isn't Europe. We don't have the European no. experience. Right. And the European sort of ideals and different values. I think Europeans have different values. And I think that actually probably came after World War II. You know, I think Europe was just devastated. Just devastated. Exactly. You know, yep. And it grew out of that. Um, This country wasn't nearly as affected by World War II as Europe was. Um, You know. So, and and just different, yeah, different, you know, history and, and whatnot. And, I mean, to be fair, when Trump was running for president, one of the things that I thought was that, yeah, okay, look at all these people that can't find a job, and here he is saying he's going to bring the factories back, and mm-hmm. and blah, blah, blah. You know, and, and, okay, maybe he's not, but remember when everybody thought Obama wasn't going to create the ACA, and he did that. Mm-hmm. So... I, I get it. I mean, I, I get that there were people that were that were desperate, and there were other people mm-hmm. that, you know. And I don't know. I I talk to a lot of people all over the country, mm-hmm. and I hear kind of the same things over and over again, which I'm fascinated to hear them because it proves the point. Right. Which right. is, you know, 2016 was people. Um, People wanted a new, people wanted a different thing mm-hmm. from before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. And yeah, I mean, they felt there was a there was a portion of the electorate who felt left out, uh, who, who saw that their lot in life, their chances, their opportunities have been diminished by globalization, by you know, offshoring of jobs. Uh, a lot of it's just been actually automation. You know, is um, you know, cutting right. to, to to well-paying, you know, jobs for the semi-skilled or low-skilled um, workforce, and they know that that's not coming back. So you got someone out there saying, "Yeah, we're going to revive the coal industry." Like, eh, 
Not really. You know, I mean, again, if you thought about it, it really wasn't going to happen. But again, if you're an unemployed coal miner, you, you're going to throw your weight behind that guy, you know. But, but also, right. But also, I mean, how many people are policy want? I mean, okay. Right. What right. I always have to ask myself is how many people outside of my head know that? Mm-hmm. When I hear something, I always have to say, I'm not the average American. Mm-hmm. Who knows that? That's, you know, the average American. Right. <laughs> you know, something like 22% of America went to graduated from college. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, so, and that number is going to go down thanks to the, yeah. the, whatever they're going to call this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, well, people vote with actually by emotion more than logic. And I think that people who, yeah. who can't candidate to get that and um, are the winners. You know, they vote through emotion. They vote through appeal to their emotion. So, again, if you're that unemployed coal miner in Kentucky or West Virginia, you know, that that person who says, yeah, we're going to bring coal back. We're going to bring the factories back. We're going to bring, you know, American need in America back. That's you know, appealing to their emotions more than logic. Logic would say, no, that's pretty d- tough to do. You know, that day is that day is done. But, well, right. Um, yeah. And I mean, also the thing I'm thinking, um, like I live where I live is one of the biggest city or one of the fastest growing places in the Americas. I, I found that out right before mm-hmm. the pandemic. Um, and we have, I mean, before, well, before the pandemic, we, the movie industry was literally moving here in real time. Mm-hmm, so, I mean, mm-hmm. there was tons of jobs, I mean, to get, um, you know, you, I, I literally remember you could literally go on Google Earth and there was a town, there's a suburban town south of me that you could literally watch on Google Earth. They were creating the film industry mm. to the point where, like the little four-year-old across the road from me, like his grandkids, I guarantee you, are gonna instead of Hollywood, they're gonna talk about Peachtree City, where they where they mean Hollywood, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. It, it, you know, but what I guess what I'm saying is like the cities are where the future happens. Yeah, and you know, the future doesn't get to other place to other places. I mean, yeah, it's just. I don't know. It's like I talked to a professor early in the pandemic, and he talked about how America was really a nation of empty houses. And I'd never mm-hmm. really thought of it like that before. But mm-hmm. he's—it's totally right. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a, yeah. I'm, I'm, I haven't heard it put like that either. That's that's a good uh, analogy. Well, yeah. on the way on the way to my dad's, I guess where my dad's from. My dad's mm-hmm. from a town uh, north of a town called Macon, Georgia. On mm-hmm. the way to where my dad's from, there's actually a town off the highway, right off the highway. You can there's an exit to it and everything. That's dead. It's literally not mm-hmm. there. There's not a soul living there. Mm-hmm. And it was abandoned in the last. I don't know. You can actually look, and they look like, you know, houses you would have seen in the 50s or 60s. Mm-hmm. They're not. This is an ancient. <laughs> you know. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. What scares yeah. me is, you know, what scares me is what's next. You right. Know, that's what, you know, did I, 
what scares me is like what happens when um what happens if a sizable chunk of the population really 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 decides they don't want to be in the country anymore mhm you know <laughs> but anyway uh you said you had a novel did i get that right yeah, so I've written um, two novels. One grew out of my um, sort of reporting experience called Skin of Tattoos, and that's um, I did some reporting in El Salvador about deported um, gang members who were deported from Los Angeles. This was a, a U.S. Po- a policy that started in the late 90s. Um, they de- started deporting people, um, legal residents, but they had... Um, and illegal, but they'd, you know, been caught for various crimes. A lot of them were gang members, and they went back to El Salvador, and some of them didn't know much English. They'd been born in out there or, you know, left as babies or young children. So they were like fish out of water. You know, they basically considered themselves as uh, American. Um, so it just kind of struck me. So I ended up, in a, and later on I ended up working for the Associated Press um, in Los Angeles, and covering a lot of gang issues. So I wrote a novel, um, sort of looking at a deeper look, you know, at, a, at the gang thing and why um, a guy's trying to get out of it. But, he, but you know, he keeps, it's very difficult once you're in to get out just emotionally because that becomes your life. Um, so it's kind of a thriller, so it's kind of a, a suspense um, uh, novel. Uh, and then the other one is a, a novel called Girl on the Brink, and it's about um, a dating abuse. A girl, uh, it's young adults, so it's the teenagers, and it's a 17-year-old girl gets involved with the wrong guy, and then she has to get out of the relationship, yeah, an abusive relationship. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, uh, and I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to bring it back to this, but I can't mm-hmm. let somebody like you go without asking you um do you want to give me your take on, I guess, the the protesting that we had during the pandemic or not? So. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it, was, it actually surprising that it hadn't happened before. Um, I think there were several confluence of several factors that made it kind of spill over. Um, you know, I mean, police shooting people um, dead, you know, killing them is nothing new. Um it's been going on for, you know, decades, um, both black people and white people and, and Hispanic, you know, everybody. Um, but, you know, I think it all really came to a head because of the pandemic. People were unemployed. They had nothing to do. Um, and the George Floyd thing happened. It was clearly a very, um, uh, you know, heinous uh, crime. You know, I mean, they, they you know, on the, with this guy on the on the guy's neck for with his knee on the a guy's neck for for ten minutes or whatever it was and for over nothing you know I mean you know just nothing and it just again it stoked that um, crime you know stopped for being black kind of a an attitude mm-hmm. that that happens in many police um, uh, departments around the country and just symbolized what black people have to uh, have gone through and, and still do, you know, when they come up against police, um, you know, which is an authority. And it's difficult, you know, again, they have the control, they have power, um, whether it's in a gun, it's the law, the badges, everything. Um, and you don't have much of a chance. And George Floyd didn't have much of a chance. He had no chance. 
So I think everything spilled over, and I think the pandemic had a lot to do with that. I think people were, you know, unemployed. They were sitting at home, furloughed or whatever, and then go out and, and protest. So I think it was a, a confluence of that. And then, um, and of course, people were um, out of work. Um, so then there was looting and, and, and rioting in a number of places, um, which you get, again, that anger, uh, frustration more spilled over. Um, and, you know, fine. And it got attention, you know. And, again, Black Lives Matter had been around for quite a while, a few years. And yeah. it's time it really seemed to catch on. It's like white people finally caught it, you know, got it, you know. And it really focused attention. And white people finally saw what black people have been trying to show us for, for years, you know. Well, um, the thing the thing with me was, you know, that the media would frame – I think the Portland protest mm-hmm. as though Portland was burning or something. Mm-hmm. And then like, I never forget it. Like I, I read somewhere that it was like, and in, in like a media outlet, right? Not like somebody's Twitter, but like a media mm-hmm. outlet that it was like really like six blocks or something. And or three, mm-hmm. whatever it was. And I'm like, okay, when I was in college at Georgia state, I used to live around the way from these protests that happened literally all the time, mm-hmm. literally all the time, to the point that I didn't even see them. Like, <laughs> you wouldn't even see them, to the point where uh tourists would stop me, and what are they protesting about? And mm-hmm. I literally had to refocus, mm-hmm. like, to even see it. And I thought, you know... I wonder how much of this is when you see take pictures of Portland and you say Portland is burning, you know. Well, that's that's just the media trying to sell stuff, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know. And yeah, I, I think mean, yeah. I, well, I think what happens is when you're on the ground and you're in the middle of that kind of a situation, it suddenly seems very urgent and overwhelming and overpowering. And people, you know, you see the reporter, and here I am standing in front of the, you know. Blah, 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 and it seems like that, and they tend to overplay it. Um, you know, I mean, I would go to visit many countries that had, like, State Department warnings. You know, Americans shouldn't go to this country because of this and this, and I'd go, and, you know, it looks fine to me. You know, there's, there's, this, there's kind of this weird um, alarmist uh, thing that takes over when, when things happen like that, and... Um, and you do have to look at the bigger picture. I agree. You know, sometimes it is overplayed. It's just overplayed. Just, and I think people yeah. get carried, carried, you know, we get carried Straight away. away but, well, they, yeah. they get kind of like, wow. Um, this has been a fascinating conversation. Um, so what are you up to now? What are you up to these days? Well, now I, I work freelance, um, mainly doing sort of corporate stuff, which is, you know, nearly as exciting as being a foreign correspondent and definitely the highlight of my journalism career. Um, and I write, I'm writing, working on a novel and I write some essays and things like that and, um, send them out for, um, literary magazines and things like that, literary journals. Um, but I'm working on a mystery, um, novel at the moment. So I'm hoping my goal for 2021 is to finish this novel. Can you tell me a little bit about the mystery novel? It's um, 
It's about a girl who was um, sexually assaulted, but she has no memory of it. She's The trauma of the, the night has repressed the memory. Um, ten years later, while she was in high school, ten years later, she's in her mid-twenties, and things start to remind her of that. And she embarks upon um, uh, a sort of a quest to find out what happened to her that night. She doesn't know what happened. And at the same time, one of the things that... Um, triggers this is a true crime podcast about an unsolved murder of a of a teenage girl that happened at the, at her same high school. So it's, it, it goes with these two threads, um, two mysteries almost, and then they kind of join up towards the end. That's all I can say without giving away the ending. I got to say, when I tell people that I have a podcast, mm-hmm. the first thing they ask me is, what crime are you solving? <laughs> that's the first thing. I mean, no. Yeah, that's kind of put podcasts on the map, though, where, where the true crime stuff, you know, serial and all that. I mean, that was a great podcast. Yeah. I, I listened to that. But, yeah, I mean, that's one of the, I guess, the staples of podcasting now is the true crime. But it's gone so much more beyond that with these, you know, these days. Right, it has. And, uh, I mean, I like. I like S Town and and uh, mm-hmm. Up and Vanished mm-hmm. and all that, but mm-hmm. you know, I yeah, I, you know, yeah. but I, I think we're living in the middle of a revolution, a technological communication revolution. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like just and I keep I'm sure my listeners are tired of me saying that, but it's the truth. <laughs> Yeah, you know. that's made accessible to, you know, anybody can, you know, you buy a little little bit of an investment and you start up your podcast and, you know, I mean, it's, the internet has really, yeah. uh, you know, made so many things um, more accessible. Well, would you want to, I guess I normally ask people, what do you want to tell the internet? But with you, I want to ask, um what would you want to tell the American voter? <laughs> uh, I would say try and look at, uh, you know, the logic of, of people's uh, candidates uh, and what they stand for, you know, instead of voting so much on an emotional level. Um, look at policy and, and see if that really um, – and, and to the benefit of all, you know, is, is some particular policy um, – Saying how many people is that going to benefit? You know, is it is it just a small amount, or is this really for the good of society? Um, you know, is expanding affordable care uh, health care? Um, who does that benefit? Well, a lot of people. You know, uh, so look at the good, the collective benefit over the benefit for of a few, and invested interests that might be come out. You know, that yeah. certain things. Yeah. Well, now that you said that. And uh, that was going to be the last question, but now I have this question. Mm-hmm. Uh, did your opinions of Hugo Chavez evolve? Yeah, I mean, I came, you know, uh, you know, because poverty, when he took over, was at 58% in Venezuela. I mean, again, a huge number of, of poor people in a nation that was very rich, uh, you know, had all this oil, uh, made billions of dollars uh, of oil. And up until maybe the 80s, it had really built a huge hydroelectric dam. It had great uh, highways. Um, 
you know, it had built a public university, you know, all this sort of stuff. And then it was the corruption that had, you know, taken um, uh, taken a lot of this wealth. And so, you know, I was willing to give Chavez the chance. I mean, because, you know, it, he was he was for the little guy and wanted to make um, do things for poor people. Um, and to a certain extent, extent he did. In his later years, he got very, very socialistic and start, and then things really started to kind of crack. Um, so, it, 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 and then the state companies started, you know, there were just pits of money, pits of corruption. Um, yeah. And then, yeah. So, uh, you know, I thought he was better going, uh, at the start of his, his reign, his tenure, and then, just kind of, you know, went hard, harder, harder and harder, left sort of a Cuba. Um, right. Charlie Moore yeah. the media, um, things like that. And by then, it, you could see that it wasn't quite going to work. Okay. I want somebody other than me to tell my listeners what the difference between a liberal and a leftist is. Hmm. Um, I don't know. I, when it's formal, to me, it's just someone, a, a left, I, I guess they're both somewhat similar. Um, maybe a well, liberal's more moderate. I don't know. I don't know. It's a good question. Well, a liberal wants about. to, well, from a politically, from a politically theoretical situation, a liberal wants to make changes within the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a leftist wants to Basically, knock the system down. Uh, okay. All right. There so you that's, go. That's a, yeah, that's a great <laughs> definition. So, yeah. uh, I don't know if I'm going to leave that bit in the podcast or not, but mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought somebody, you know, somebody who'd actually lived through a coup, because I've never, knock wood, lived through a coup yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. But, um, I don't know. It's, I've seen things this last four years I I never thought I would have seen. I yeah, mean, I agree. I never. Agree. Yeah. I mean, especially this election. This election, this whole this year has just been one thing. I you just keep thinking it couldn't get any worse, and it did. <laughs> well, yeah, and also well, stranger. It just kept getting stranger. Maybe not. It just, it's just well, stranger. right, and you know, twenty one is going to be. I mean, twenty one is going to be even weirder. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I mean, who knows what's going to happen? Yeah, it's, it's it, we live in interesting times, that's for sure. Well, I, I have a friend who does a lot of research on um, what Americans actually think, mm-hmm. and he has. I mean, I don't know the number right now, but there's a there's this wacky percentage of humans in this country that seem to believe that uh, vaccines not only don't work, but are mm-hmm harmful and you know um mm-hmm. yeah all righty well Christine, oh, great um, it was great to talk this, to you this yeah. was this i really enjoyed it and yeah, me too. is there anything you don't want me to when you want me to leave out no i don't think so as long as i don't sound too um yeah, you know, whatever. I, I think it, I think it's fine. I'm. I was fascinated. Uh, <laughs> they'll. They'll. I'm sure they'll love it. All right. Have a Have a good day. Thank you. All right. Great. Yeah. Just let me know when it's when it's up on the.
you've got it up and I can, you know, put it out on social media and all that business. I'm going to give it a, I'm going to have a podcast to do in a few hours with somebody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm probably tomorrow. Oh, okay. Uh, probably right. tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. If I don't get, if I don't get on it right now, I'm probably tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Talk to you later. All right. Bye. Sounds great. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye.